to episode three of Naturally Smart People in our second series. And as you know, this series is focusing on the idea of scapes, landscapes, mindscapes, and in particular today, we're looking at thoughtscapes, the combination of a rigorous mind, a depth of feeling, and a suppleness of perception, I suppose, are the ways in which I'd like to introduce my guest today, Nora Bateson. What interests you at the moment? What are the things that are sort of pushing your buttons at the start of this 2018? I will illustrate for you a moment this summer when a great deal came into focus for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it will bring everything together. So I was actually um, in London and I was working with a wonderful group of people um, in the International Bateson Institute, which is a research institute that I started mm-hmm. um, with the idea that it was a good time for us to begin studying complex living systems by looking at the relationships and the processes of interdependency and interrelationality that give them their vitality. Mm. Um, But to study those relationships is something very different than to study what you might think of as sort of the nodes or the players or the, the aspects of a system. And notice that I'm really trying not to say parts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, because our modes of study have to do with pulling things out of their contextual relational processes and getting the details on them, which is wonderful and good. And we have whatever, you know, 500 years of science um, that have developed those processes. However, what we most, we, humanity, most need to understand now is how that relational interdependence is crucial to the vitality of living systems at all levels, from our bodies to our communities to our families to the biosphere, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have a way of researching that. Mm-hmm. We don't have any language for it. In fact, that kind of information is really difficult to even think about. Um, And I'll tell you why. Because after the scientific revolution and the, the beginning of the scientific method, it became clear that what needed to happen, I know this doesn't sound like a biography, but I'm getting there, (laughs) Um, (laughs) was that we needed to be able to study things and have our studies be objective and have them be repeatable to get the same results if the if the experiment was repeated and to have our results be measurable um, and to have them take place through induction Mm -hmm. among other things that created sort of you know empirical science Mm -hmm. um Relational interdependence doesn't fall in any of those characteristics. 
Okay. There's no way that, that you can have objectivity because it completely is depends upon which perspective, which point of view, which version of the relationship is being described. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's by necessity, not objective. Um, and, um, you can't repeat the results because when relationships take place over time, they change and respond to the changes and respond to the responses and the responses continually. Hmm. So you can't repeat the experiment and get the same results and nothing is measurable whatsoever. Um, additionally, you get all kinds of contradictions and paradoxes looking at living relational processes. I mean, seriously, what relationship have you ever been in or witnessed that didn't include inconsistencies mm-hmm. or contradictions or paradoxes? Mm-hmm. That's the name of the game, right? Yep, yep, yep. And we sort of unfold into this continually. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this session in London was on some research that we've been doing and um, something that I've been working on called that I call warm data. Yeah. And warm data is the idea that you can we it's time to generate another species of information. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's don't even try to get this research to look, taste or feel like other analytical research. Let's just don't even do that. We have to approach it in another way, describe it in another way, express it in another way, and then consequently use the information in another way. So this is a paradigm shift in a sense, isn't it? It's it's a recognition that this is paradigmatically different from the mainstream ways in which people have understood reality up until over the last few hundred years, like you say. You're challenging a major convention, basically, through this way of reframing. I I guess so, Paul. I mean, and and that sounds really radical and new and contemporary. But at the same time, I I have the sense that, um, that we've never not been doing warm data. Sure. Right? That somehow the information that took place that was outside the realm of documentation through measurement and um, objective uh, observation was, was always there. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was always important. I mean, if you think about even the history of business, can you imagine a single business deal that's ever taken place? that could possibly happen without the warm data, without mm. the recognition of tone of voice and without a, a sort of a, an understanding of the relational characteristics of those people and those organizations. So I think we've been doing it all along. We just didn't have a, a way of authorizing or mandating or, or really officializing this. So one of the, one of the things that, I've scribbled about in the past is this idea of the illusion of certainty and I guess what you're saying is that we've 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 created this illusion of certainty in our daily systems and daily practices 
but actually the reality is very different. And there's a great quote that you pull out in your book about from William Blake, the eye altering alters all. Mm. I absolutely love Blake. I think it's one of those other, you know, that we were saying about the orbits of connection. You know, William Blake has been part of my life forever and I suspect he's very much part of yours. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the eye altering alters all is exactly what I think you're saying, isn't it? That, that our perception, yeah. you know, we, we, we continue to try to find ways in which we can define reality in a concrete way. But actually what we delude ourselves but we delude ourselves by doing that and the lovely thing about Blake's quote is that it's altering it's not altered it's altering it's continually changing and I, th I sense that in what you're suggesting that the warm data the relationship data is so delicate it, it just continually unfolds into the into new contexts and we have to understand my, my sense of what you're getting at is we have to learn to work with that to 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 be able to feel that in new ways because our and old to, ways don't do it yeah. to authorize it and yes, that's a really that's nice. big piece yeah. i mean here we are in the middle of this incredible me too moment mm. and you know one of the the issues here is that so much of what's taking place is taking place in the nonverbal um, or even in the verbal but unprovable, unmeasurable realm. Hmm. How is the law ever going to really understand what, how to deal with this? Hmm. Hmm. It, um, a, you know, consent is really a complex thing. And it's not just yes and no. Consent has to do with all sorts of contextual issues of, of all you know everything from finance to politics to religion to culture to age to um, I Cir mean circumstances. Everything, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, you know the legal system has always fallen down when it comes to the, these sorts of questions, because mm. there's just, there's no way to make it static, which is what mm. I think you're saying by there's a certain degree of uncertainty mm. um, that you, you can't freeze frame mm. this kind of information. And if you try to freeze frame it, everybody gets hurt. Mm. It's a, it's a breach to the, circuitry of the of the complexity that it's within mm. and that breach has consequences and consequences of consequences and consequences of consequences mm. of consequences mm. um so it's this importance of being able to say this is real and it matters it can't be proven it can't be measured but that doesn't mean it's not there. Mm. And that's really hard for us. Culturally, that's a hard call. Um, because, I mean, I mean, it's hard because of, what, ego? Our, our, our desire to feel like we're able to control? Or is it, you know, and I mean that culturally as well as individually. Or is it also the, is it also hard to deal with because, 
our prevailing ways of understanding reality can't accommodate that as an acceptable, meaningful form of data. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's both of those. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And maybe something more uh, in the meta. Yeah, which... that, that comes out very strongly in your book. I think that the... The thing I kept coming back to when I was reading your book, sorry to interrupt there, but I just, I, I want to throw this in, just in the mix. There's something in Blake and there's something in you and there's something in your context of what you're talking about that brings spirit, I suppose, into this word as well. The, the interface between the, what you call the smaller arc and larger circles. Some, yeah. That's those in the, the 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 points at which those things overlap. Is is some it's that otherness that people always talk about, but they don't necessarily define. You know that you feel it rather than express it. Exactly, and that's that place where connections are made. Mm, mm. And in the realm where connections are made, they can be remade. And they are remade continually. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I love the fact, at the, end, at the back of your book, right? Well, you know this better than I do, but there's a super description of, of Nora Bates. And it says, um, where is it? In, in the book, you add to the voices of researcher, mother, intellectual, storyteller, analyst, policy advisor, poet. Isn't that the sort of definition of where we need to be? The embodiment of multiple, almost multiple selves in different contexts, but continually connecting in with different relationships each time responding to circumstances you find yourself in. And the eye altering then alters all. So we continually reframe it. You know, there's something wonderfully right. evocative in it, I think. And, and But it's very delicate in the context of our current worldview and the dominant worldview, isn't it? You, know, you must encounter that, I guess. The, your well, what happens is that I can't figure out where I am and no one else can either. That's um, quite a nice thing, isn't it? <laughs> actually, yeah, it's a great freedom, a wonderful relief, um, a beautiful education, uh, and and really, for me, I you know, it's the liminal realm. It's the space between politics and art and economy and culture and intimacy and um, all these different aspects of looking at life, psychology, etc. And um, so I travel between those realms, uh, which means that I'm in a really unique uh, position and I have the opportunity to compare the patterns mm. that are taking place in these different realms, things, processes, language, um, usage, um, concerns, issues, crises, developments, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And to be able to hold them up against each other and 
rub them against each other and see what happens when they connect. And mm-hmm. not a lot of people have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that so one of the reasons why you set up the Bates and the Institute? Is it, is it in order to further that opportunity? Is it to... I guess so, yeah. Strategically, um, you know? And, and to really begin to, in earnest, recognize how beautiful and important it is that we, that we get an understanding of what interdependency really is about mm. and how we can interact and respond to it in ways that are not mechanistic, that aren't necessarily um, imbued with the the intent to control or direct, mm-hmm. but to, you know, don't try to crack the code, catch the rhythm. Mm-hmm. Nice. You know, that yeah. that's the that's the difference. Yeah. Um, to move with it and to recognize how we are within it and what the conditions are inside of that interdependency. It's really easy to talk about nature and being in nature and that we're all connected and interconnected. That's e- those are easy words to say. Mm. Mm. But what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I love that phrase you use of being an ecology within ecologies, that, that, that embeddedness. It yeah. seems to me to imply that in order to understand nature, we need to understand ourselves far better than we currently do. And I guess that's something that you're sketching out for us, is that you know, how do we begin to consider that in this sort of layers of this, on, this onion of the world we're in? It intrigues me because I think there's something in this that, I was on the way back last night. I got stuck in the snow, as I was telling you earlier, and listening to a podcast of some young guys in in Portland, I think, talking about virtual reality. Mm. And for various reasons, I've sort of avoided virtual reality in in my thinking for quite a long time. But what I noticed in what they were talking about was extremely interesting for me, anyway. Was this idea that perhaps it gives us a bridge into a different form of understanding ourselves in our own places that we can then use to reapply back into our perception. And, and, and it's because it's such an early stage of development, it's almost like the, the experiments in early brain surgery. You know, you poke something and something happens. And their forays into this at the moment are quite blunt, but they were saying, you know, that, there are interesting potentials to to perhaps begin to bridge between human and more than human, and and that that intrigues me a lot, you know. And I wonder whether in your and you, you mentioned in your one of the pieces in your book about something that's very close to my heart, which is do trees think, and that how do we begin to explore questions like that with, with through the lens of a human but to get into this idea of an interspecies relationship. And VR was one of the things that these guys were talking about last night, that they were hinting that that might be possible. I I simply don't know enough about it to know whether it makes any sense or not. 
Do you see where I'm going? There's something. I do, and I think the key is making sense. Mm. Um, I'm really, really interested in this notion of how do we make sense, mm. uh, and and hence the the sort of push for look, let's think about information in a new way. Let's make room in our world for another kind of information. Yeah. Um, because our way of making sense is so limited by our notion of what is information, what is logic, what is reasonable, rational, um, what's, what's real, what is reality, virtual or, or not. Um, and so it's one of the things I love about cryptocurrencies is they make you wonder, wait a second, what is currency? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just simply a belief system, isn't it? If, if you yeah. if you commit to believe it's got value, it, it has value, and and it therefore becomes something that is easily play out played out in a way that we've never done before, I suppose, which is beyond nation states, and that, that's quite fun. I think that, it's quite fun. It, I have no idea where it goes, but at least there's oxygen. There's an opening. There's something. Yeah that is breathable there where prior there was a very rigid tight set of logical limits that we were within and um you know the minute you hear someone say yeah but bitcoin's not real then you you know you can almost see it happen yeah it's a breakout cross their brow as they start to wonder yeah but what about the other currency is that real <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute, what is real? Yeah. I mean, and somehow in our lives, nothing is more real than money, but wait. And then it's the Alice in Wonderland moment. You just fall down the hole, don't you? you know, it's... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this idea of making sense mm. is very much linked to the notions around um, this kind of looking at, the world through multiple contextual lenses, what we call transcontextual research. Mm. Um, and that's, that's sort of my sneaky way of getting out of interdisciplinary languaging. Mm. Um, you know, the world's mm. not really yeah. made of disciplines. It's made of contexts. It's made of life. Yeah. And um, if you frame them through disciplinary language and study, you're going to find disciplinary discoveries. Yeah. It, so it's, it's so important to be careful what we're looking for because we tend to find it. This was the sort of basis of your talk in Rome in 2013, I guess. The, yes. The, 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 uh, the notion of uncertainty being part of what knowledge should be. And how we play that out, and don't end up just trying to categorise what uncertainty is in another in another part of the disciplinary framework. But we will. I love that idea actually about the raccoons. That's a super little story of him <laughs> feeling into the mud, and yeah, you can sort of play. You feel like the play doh of the mind working there. You know, like feeling into the mud to find the grubs, but you don't want whether it's a grub or whether it's a root and you, you've got some prehistory of what a grub's like. And I, I, I imagined that quite strongly as I read it. I sort of thought, yeah, that, that, there's something very tactile in this approach that is not present in 
much of the sort of previous ways the academy has made sense of reality. And, and you know what you just said, Paul, is that basically you're using your senses to make sense. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And some of that can be hunch as much as, well, it's just as much a hunch as it is rationalised, you know? It's a gut feeling to things, isn't it? That, that, that we see very strongly in in the other than human all the time. You know, my dogs do it. We used to keep pigs. They used to have a very strong inclination to know whether they wanted to come near you or whether they'd run away at any given moment, you know? And they're very suspicious, but they have a trust they build over time because they get into the relationship with you. And so, so there are ways in which I think we've already got feelers into this into into species element of what a deep ecology of mind might be about yeah uh, well i mean we live with trillions mm. trillions of organisms in mm. and on us and between us mm. 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 so it's um it's not even having to be thought is it yeah Right to, to imagine a world that is only a human world is is a is a wild mistake. Yeah, that's the thing I find really worrying about VR. You know that idea that the construct of the world that's virtual is utterly human. I could not agree with you more. I don't know where that will go or mm. how it will open up, but um, it's definitely an issue right now in in many circumstances. I mean, just just recognizing identity as being a, a, a complex process of not only our ecological um, interaction with the world around us through all these organisms that live with us, but also all the different ways in which we contextually become in every moment through language, through culture, through politics, through genetics, through history, through religion, through our families, through our, our, our relationship as friend, as lover, in our gender, right? There's so many different contexts in which identity is constantly forming and learning and responding to the world. Um, and the recognition that that isn't just, I am not just me. I am absolutely also all these organisms and all these relationships. And how can I possibly separate myself? There's this, this paradox there that I, I call this the paradox of agency where, you know, I am me and the way that I go around the world seeing is the way that only I can see. Only I can taste blueberries in that way. Only I can see the color blue in the way that I see it. Right? It's very unique, my frame, as is yours, as is everyone's. My experience is just unique to me. But everything that informs that uniqueness comes from the contexts in which I live. It's not mine. Hmm. So am I me? And I, I think when we go really into the heart of that beautiful paradox, there's it's so productive. 
But if you solve it and you come down on one side or the other, you lose the beautiful tension and aliveness between those two possibilities of even just who we are as individuals. Who am I? Well, am I my family history? Am I my contacts? Am I my profession? Am I my age, my financial position? My Who am I? Where where do you where do you most find it? Do you, where do you go physically go to to find the to search for this to get the to get the the solace of this almost? To, I don't, hmm. Well, for me, I go to the arts or to nature. Hmm. Um, I find that the arts integrate mm-hmm. these aspects of of self. Um, you know, music integrates. Yeah. Um, but so does nature. And you know, it's interesting because we started. I started talking about William Bates and my grandfather. Yeah. Uh, and he was a scientist. Um, actually he coined the term genetics. Yeah. Um, and he used to say that genius could only be found in art and in nature and that while science should always be inspired by it, it could never achieve it. Mm, It's just almost like a servant of those things. And I, I thought being an artist, I thought I had chosen wisely (laughs) not to (laughs) dive down that terrible rigorous field of study of science of any sort and then i realized that i had not dodged any rigor whatsoever that's partly why i'm asking you know what the where where one would look because i i'm I'm conscious of the one of the stories in one of the yeah let's call it a story in, in the book about your relationship with Tom and the zombies, and yeah. and, the, and the, the 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 world around us, as we're growing up, enveloping us into a particular ways of seeing and thinking, and actually, you know, if if, if in, both intuitively and in, instinctively we know there's something else, and we find almost fighting against that dominant view. How do we? work our way through you know how, how a part of it must be to find others of kindred spirit I mean I think that for me that's been one major saving grace from going completely crazy at times I think is to know there's other people out there grappling with some of the same things but the, but it's also that you know the, 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 the nurturing of it yes through music yes Walking in a forest, or standing on a cliff edge, watching watching the sea, you know, um, because it breaks from the the only view being human, or the only way of understanding it being human. Yeah, and and being human, being a singular experience, which yes. of course yeah. it isn't actually. Yeah, yeah. That's a self-imposed yeah. limit. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, it's it's that paradox, though, isn't it? Of of 
dealing with the day-to-day and dealing with the universal all at once? Especially when the day-to-day is in a sort of double bind with the universal. Mm. You know, we... I'm thinking about what you're saying here, and one of the things that I I want to to add is that the way that I have to kind of muster my way through is to be willing to be absolutely inspired and awestruck in the beauty of life itself, but also to be really angry um, at the destruction that I see around me and to be in the excruciating pain of witnessing and, and experiencing the exploitation that our world um, is perpetuating. And then to fall hopelessly, sensually, passionately in love with all of it. Um, And then to turn around and find it, hilarious and be willing to laugh and you know there's this kind of multi-textured response that is important um and it is as intellectual as it is emotional as it is physical as it is um sort of all of those things coming together in in interaction and so i i I have to be able to recognize that there are days that I wake up and I'm furious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that that's okay. You know, I, I don't want to allow the kind of new age positivistic psychobabble of, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you feed your anger, you have to live in it. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, look, if you're not angry, who? And at the same time, if you're not willing to, you know, be wildly in love with life, who Mm. are you? Mm. Mm. But you can't really have one without the other. And so there's this, we are in a time, and this is why I was sort of saying back to this moment in London where we did this warm data work on what is health. What is health? Where is health? Mm. Um, and it was a beautiful session. And the next day I went to the Cambridge archives to go look up some material on William Bateson. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when the last time you read any of these biological scientific texts that were written at the turn of the century, but there are, really a hard slog it's a difficult it's another language it is just another language connected to another whole set of connections that i i i can't begin really to understand the full context of but i was um at that moment feeling disheartened feeling the the resistance in our world to making the kind of changes that need to get made in our perception, 
in our studying, in our description, in our institutional structures, and in in everything, right? In our economies, in our culture. And trying to whatever, from trying to raise funds for the Bateson Institute and trying to get this material out and just trying to wake up the next morning and keep having the inspiration to do this and not give up. Mm. Mm. And, um, and in the meantime, you know, we, it, the contamination is so thorough that so many of the people that I work with, even in the fields of, change making and ecology and anthropology and and all the beautiful things that are out there the great whatever the 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 people who are making the change now but they're also stealing each other's ideas and planting flags on one another's work and trying to get the keynote and trying to get the book published and trying to sell themselves Mm -hmm. and they're in competition in a way that is is in keeping with the patterns of Wall Street, mm. not the patterns of the ocean or the forest. Yeah, they still play the game. They're in the game, and yeah. and it's so awful to mm. be in this place of working toward generating new ideas and hoping to make a change and having someone that you would wish could be a collaborator because everyone's talking about collaboration, steal your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was feeling kind of kicked in the belly and I went to go to the Cambridge archives and <laughs> <laughs> there was all this material of my grandfather's wow. from, you know, even before the turn of the century. And he's talking about actually a lot of what we're talking about right now. So you're talking about the 1890s onwards. Yeah. 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 And he's talking about, you know, doing research that studies environmental interdependency so that we can understand how evolution is environmentally dependent. He's using the word system. He's doing, he's fighting tooth and nail to get women to be able to study at Cambridge and then not only to be students, but to also be professors. Mm. And he's fighting against the political and economic um, connections to the academy that are utilizing work in genetics toward promoting eugenics and this horrible Mm. study that would later become fascism, but wasn't there yet. Um, and he's fighting, fighting, fighting for this same beautiful delicacy of life that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. And a hundred years and, later, those institutions are still stuck right. in that same narrative to a great degree. Yeah. Okay. That's right. And the clincher for me was when I found a note from the palace, from Buckingham Palace, inviting mm-hmm. him to come and um, receive, be knighted um, by the king on the king's birthday. And William's response, which was, he didn't even sign his full name to it. He just said, I cannot accept your offer, Mm -hmm. WB. 
And in that moment, I recognized and I found so much salt. It was just, I mean, that was absolutely the medicine that I needed in that moment to remember that this, this thing that we're looking for, this shift, this possibility of making sense in a new way, this opportunity to use our senses and to relate and to generate new understandings of our world, this is not going to come from the establishment. Mm. Mm. So it's, this, this is like listening to poetry, Nora. I, I, I think, you know, the distinction between a, a paragraph and a poem, you know, the, the, I, the, the flow of what you're describing then raises the possibilities of connections through through creative endeavors with good intention almost you know what mm-hmm. what happens i mean that in, in a sense it sort of answers my question from earlier about well, what is the Bateson institute because it starts to make sense to me as a creative space for people to come into and work together without that expectation that they're going to be the keynote or whatever, or even the desire to be that because it's you leave that behind as you walk through the door and you, ent- right. you enter a different space creatively and the, i suppose the word that comes to mind is emergence this this how do we live with that emergence create and, and usefully explore it in in our context of daily life so that it becomes the norm rather than the 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 deviant (laughs) this year I um, actually it was last year I was with a group of people it was a very exclusive group of some 30 people gathered to you know help figure out how to save the world sort of thing. Mm. And one of them was a um, master of Taoism. Oh, was that Ray? Uh, it, his name was Master Chuang. And um, he's from China, Taiwan. Okay. And uh, in the middle of this exercise, actually it wasn't the middle, it was almost the end, Uh, I got a text from my daughter and my daughter was 21 at the time. And she texted me to say that one of her college friends had done a exchange program at the university of Kabul and the university had just been bombed and her friend had been killed. And that she knew that I was in a room full of people who were going to change the world. And could we please hurry up because her friends were dying. Mm -hmm. And this text message came in like a hot knife through butter into this room of people who, you know, we had been contemplating very important things, but it's easy to get abstracted. It's yeah. easy to have these things begin to sort of wax in the, in the philosophical and the, the ethereal realms. And when you have something real like that drop in the middle of it, it it's so... Uh, a gift and um, there was a moment and 
of silence. And then Master Chuang chimed in and he said this thing that I think speaks to what you are just saying about what what the purpose is of the Bateson Institute. He said this. He said, 3,500 years we've been studying the Tao. Now we stand at the edge of the extinction, not only our own species, but thousands of others. And we have to admit that no matter how important or beautiful or terrible our history has been, everything we know so far, it's not enough. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's the piece. That's where I feel like he articulated in that moment so beautifully exactly what it is that for me is not only the work, but the meta messaging, the aesthetic, the, the, the tone, the mood of where we are right now of recognizing, okay, we've done a lot of things. There have been brilliant characters and there's been incredible artists and there's been horrible, treacherous dictators. Whatever it was, it wasn't enough. And that in this moment, we're the people that are here. The seven some odd billion of us that are here and the trillions of organisms that live on and in our bodies and our interaction with the world around us, this is what we have. Mm -hmm. And how can we bring new sense-making into this, new kinds of ways of knowing because everything we know so far isn't isn't enough. Um, and I think for me that is a source of great uh, I don't know motivation maybe Challenge. is the right yeah. word. Yeah. But it's um, because it is hard to get up in the morning and just keep slogging, yeah. especially you know like looking at my grandfather's work that was 120 years ago mm. and thinking it's so inspiring to see that he was fighting all the same battles and inspired in all the same ways. And at the same time, it's like, Oh no, <laughs> we haven't gotten anywhere. Um, and of course that's not entirely true. I don't mean that, but there is that sort of combined sense of disappointment and and really questioning like what's holding it back like you said we know mm. we mm. know why can't our knowing matter in the way that we structure our world mm. it's one of, and one of john, we yeah it's, it's one of one of john lou's comments really in, in just the science of regenerating damaged ecosystems that we know how to intervene and support nature to to replenish itself but we simply don't teach it we don't go into our school systems and advocate this as a curriculum we don't take it to the 
front pages of our newspapers and say, okay, look, we've got a crisis with plastics. Yeah, we know that, but what, what could we do? Well, we could do all of these sorts of things and have a much more positive consequence on not just the physical environment, but also on our well-being within that environment. And and I, I, I suspect some of that is down to the, the powers and the politics of our time. Um, and that's why I think the sort of thing you're doing with the institute in terms of creating the, the, the it's an opportunity space to, to advocate a different narrative and to build a community around that that can explore experimentally and practically the, 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 the implications of it in, in, in this urgent sort of moment. That seems to me to be a as Tom Berry always described it, you know, great work. You know, it's it, it's a continuation of what your family have done for generations. <laughs> it's and it's inspiring, but it's also, I guess, I don't know, but it must be very heavy at times to to <laughs> to, to take that mantle on. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I deliberately don't want to spend time talking about your, your family. Because I think, it, in a sense, your own work is sufficient to, for this conversation. But it is, it is always, it's almost like it hovers around the laptop and the conversation we're having, doesn't it? Because that is part of this, our ecology of mind together. And, <laughs> it, and it, 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 it is... You come you come up one point in the book, and I love I'd love this book. I'm gonna I'll put it on the website for people to find it as well. Um, but there's there's one particular piece in it that where you talk about Gordian knots, and I, I just I'd never come across that concept before. And I did a little bit of reading around it, and I just love that idea of this. I have no idea whether it's true or not, but I imagine it's. Well, I have a vision of it's not being a bit like those ridiculous things that used to have on ships, where they're knotted into themselves so deeply that you've got no way of under, understanding where it begins and ends. So what do you do? You chop the knot, <laughs> and and that coming almost full circle to what you said at the beginning. We 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 need to have a very very different way of understanding reality. To, and 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 then bring bring people into that conversation from all sorts of different sectors, I guess, so that we're no longer just bunkering it into subjects and stuff, but we're actually looking more in terms of ourselves being that ecology together and dealing with that as a group and getting out, getting over it, and then getting on with stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and I think some of that has to do with our capacity for dealing with paradox, mm -hmm. um, which is connected to that Gordian knot mm. idea. Um, and just for your listeners, the, the, the idea that I'm playing with in that piece is just that, um, you know, the gift was the chariot yeah. that was tied with the knot and the chariot is a beautiful metaphor for um, motion and movement. And the knot is a beautiful metaphor for um, 
for stuckness and order and mm-hmm. uh, stillness and and looking at how things are always both the same and changing, that there is chaos and order, mm-hmm. and that between that the gift was not the chariot. The gift was the chariot plus the knot. The knot. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the and that in that is an incredible insight into life. Um, but, of course, the way the story gets delivered to us is that when you come to an impossible question, you just cut it off. Mm. And that's only a short-term thing. Short-term exactly. rewards. <laughs> and that the... the the idea was never to undo the knot, but to recognize the paradox. Mm. Um, just sort of like the paradox I was just discussing about the notion of agency. Mm. You know, mm. is my agency my own, or is it that that comes from my the, the context of my life? Mm. Right. If I quit smoking, is that me that quit smoking? Or is it the culture around me and someone in my life and my own sense of self-esteem that comes from my relationship to my parents or my diet choices or my relationship to my body? Or like, where does it come from? Is it mine? Or is it my context? That there's this, you know, this kind of mathematical, intellectual trickery that's associated with paradoxes. And it's really too bad because paradoxes open up so much um, generative thinking that can move in two ways at the same time. Mm. And the idea that you can't do that is just a stupid idea because we do it all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right. It's how we so, get through the day. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. All day long. Yeah. We I, do it. I, 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 I'm reminded again of William Blake with this idea in his, is it the marriage of heaven and hell, where he talks about um, without contraries is no progression. Exactly. And it's beautifully captured, isn't it? You know, that utterly held intention forever. So live with it, you know, make it part of how we understand what we are in the context of everything else. Right. Blake also says, he says two things. Lines and therefore they draw them. And that um, fools, madmen see outlines and therefore they draw them. Mm. And, you know, both of those things are true. Mm. It's insane to draw categories and separate the world into pieces. But when you start to understand the world, it's important that you draw categories and begin to understand how things are in various clumps of relationships. But that one just goes back and forth and back and forth. And it's it's the thing is, is that's that's the relationship to the zoom in, zoom out. Right. Mm -hmm. It's important to be able to zoom in and look at all those details and draw those categories and 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 measure those things. But then it's important to zoom out and recognize the contextual processes, the interdependencies, the ways in which life requires much larger sets of of rhythms. Mm -hmm. And um, the hitch is. If you just choose one, you're going to create insanity and destruction. So it's it's about both. 
and how to do them simultaneously. And, uh, you know, if I were going to develop a curriculum for schools, that would be the key right there of what, what thinking skills, what perceiving skills are necessary for the future of humanity. Nora, when, when I um, got your message that you'd do this conversation with me, I had no idea we would talk about these things, which is actually really <laughs> wonderful because in a sense it illustrates the, the magnificence of the human mind, you know, the, 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 the flow of the human mind and the opportunities that we get to connect like this are so seldom but I think what you're doing in your institute and in your work really bridges the potential for people to connect. Is it possible for you to just tell us a little bit about the practicalities before we finish of, of, of the institute's activity and where it is at the moment and where you want it to go next so that if there are folks out there listening they could perhaps connect to you and yeah. Just in terms of a sort of step forward, yeah. I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the Bayton Institute has spent as a group. It is a group of people, not a place. Mm. Um, and these are people that I've kind of picked from around the world, not because they were famous or well published, mm. but because they were people be that I felt could really do the thinking without getting caught in their own net. Mm. Um, and recognizing that there's a need for a, a, a study group that is also it has a, a, a need for communication to the world of what it is that's being studied, that is um, able to work not only in their own um, professions, all the people in the Basin Institute are professional in their own right, but they rec they have a common language of this kind of Bateson history of ideas of patterns and relationships and how things are in communication and interaction in ecological living systems and also human cultural systems which aren't so very different mm. um so we spent the first three years um self-organizing self-funding around the question of how do systems learn which is an interesting mm. question because we started with how do systems get unstuck and what we realized through our research in several different contexts was systems don't get unstuck. What happens is that systems learn, and when they learn, the stuckness um, is a condition of another set of consequences. It just, mm. it's just, it, so that's fascinating yeah. because yeah. people are obsessing right now on how do we have systems change. What do we, how do we get to a change? And um, it's an interesting idea to approach that from another angle and say, well, what if systems don't change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if they just learn 
And as they learn, the change is a, is a side consequence. Um, so, so that's what we have been working on. And, um, that work has a lot of depth to it at this point. Um, and there are a couple of different really important pieces that have come out of that. One is on symathesy, which is this word sim for together and mathesy for learning. So symathesy is a context of mutual learning. Um, and that is just a way of looking at, you know, how, how do we study a forest or a culture as a system that is in a state of mutual learning? How is it learning to be wonderful? And, yeah. You know, learning yeah. might not be positive. We do learn to lie, learn to be violent, learn yeah. to be yeah. destructive. Yeah. So what, what does that mean? If, if sometimes learning can be pathology, mm -hmm. how can learning then be shifted to be the healing? Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the things we've been working on and looking at how to really address some of the great, crises of our time from immigration to climate change to addiction to health care without categorizing them and separating them into different isolated crises mm. what is the pattern that connects those things mm. what is it about the way that um that our societies are learning to be that is contributing to these consequences. Um, so that's a big project that we are working on right now. And what would be wonderful, what is in my dream is that somebody hears me say that and says, yes, you are on it. This is the right thing for us to do. Let's put a big endowment on this project. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I don't have to scramble all the time for all these nickels and dimes. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway, whether yeah. I have to scramble or not. Um, yeah. Because I think it it's, has to. It's it, is where of, it, is, it is what we are. This is where we are. This yeah. is what we need to do. Yeah. And so we do it. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's exciting. It's warm data it's and it's systems learning and yeah, it's. Yeah looking at trans contextual identities and processes and its living systems. And it's, mm. and it's, it's 120 years of agony of watching science and society mm. be destructive and exploitative. And it's 120 years of inspiration and awe at the beauty of life itself. Thank you, Nora, for spending time with me this morning. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you, Paul, and um, it's really such a joy to talk to you, and um, I just look forward to meeting you in person, and I hope we get a chance to do that. Well, as I'm sure you can tell, we carried on talking for another 20 minutes. Um, thank you, Nora, for a really great conversation this morning. I really enjoyed it. I hope that you found that interesting as well. If you did and you'd like to make any comments, please get in touch with me, Paul at foundation.rocks, or leave us feedback at the iTunes website. This podcast comes to you courtesy of Naturally Smart Publishing 2018. Our first book is released in a few weeks' time, 
being human in a more than human world. And I'll send further details of that onto the website in the next few days. Look forward to talking to you next month and uh, travel safe. Bye-bye.